0: Have you ever watched a good documentary? And I watched uh, one pretty recently that was about a baseball team that was in Portland from 1972 to 1977. Uh, They were called the Portland Mavericks. They're an independent baseball team. The documentary is on Netflix and... uh, and it was awesome, and I loved it. And I instantly became a fan of the Portland Mavericks, not because they were a baseball team, which I like baseball, but not because they're a baseball team, not even because they were located in Portland, just because of, like, the backstory. And I actually, on my Christmas list, and I received this from my parents, uh, had a couple of Portland Mavericks things, a hat and a shirt, and so you'll you'll see my Portland Mavericks hat and shirt eventually. But it was all because, like, I saw the story about this team and, and how it came together and and about how the people were a bunch of misfits that were on this team, and how the fans really reacted to this team in Portland. How well it fit Portland and its weirdness, and I, I and I heard that it was like the most fun baseball experience that really uh, anybody's ever known. And people that didn't like baseball were filling up Civic Stadium like the Portland Beavers had never done before. And I was instantly like, I just connected in a new way with the Portland Mavericks. I I didn't even know they existed before the documentary, but it wasn't just that they existed. It wasn't what they were. It was really about kind of what was involved to get them to that point. Uh, I read Steve Jobs' biography, which is like this big, and uh, and I'm I'm like a Steve Jobs guy now. And I used to be li- I, I like my Apple products, and you know that because I preach from an iPad. and I was like the first person in the country to do that, and everybody else copied me. So if you ever see somebody preach with an iPad, they copied me. But but I, I've always liked Apple. But then I read Steve Jobs biography, and it was like it was like different. It was like everything that had gone into his life and kind of led to the iPad and to the Mac and to the iPhone. Like everything that kind of came together to make those things happen and who he really was, even when he was really a jerk, which he could be. It like all kind of after I read that book, it all came together. And now I like I, I, I would bleed for the iPad and for Apple. And and I will will stand up strong and tell you why every other computer is garbage and about how Apple is different because they really are driven by design first instead of by engineering first. And now other companies are copying that and trying to be like them. And, And it's all because I read this biography about this guy who's a big part of it. And so it like became real to me. I knew who Steve Jobs was. I knew that what he had invented or at least claimed to invent while other people did it for him. I, I knew all these things, but but I didn't really feel like I knew him until I read this story that, that told things like, like when he was an adult, he had never met his dad before, but he found out his dad was working in this restaurant from his sister. And so Steve Jobs um sister went and 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 Met, went to meet the dad, and, and I think invited Steve Jobs, if my memory serves me right, but he decided not to go, but the sister's in there, and, and the, the dad says to her, knowing this is his daughter now, but not knowing Steve Jobs is even his son, says, says, like, famous people come into my restaurant, like Steve Jobs comes here sometimes, and it's like, wow, all of a sudden, like, you feel a new connection, just knowing that his dad was trying to impress his daughter by saying his son was there, not having a clue that his was his son at all, and it's pretty cool to know that that impacted Steve Jobs, that story, to go, wow, my dad thought something of me, even if he never knew who I was. My grandma on Thanksgiving uh, likes to have people read stuff. It seems like, but this year she's like, "Hey, I got this book on Squanto, and you've heard of Squanto, and all you probably know about Squanto just off the top of your head is he has something to do with Thanksgiving, right? Like he fed some pilgrims, and that was it. But this is the story she made me read. It was pretty. It was pretty large. It was a kids' book. It was like a large kids' book. And at first, I'm like, I don't want to do this right now. I want to watch football. And, And as I read, his story is actually incredible like it, everything that leads up to like being a part of Thanksgiving it made it way better. It's like Squanto is like my hero now. He was kidnapped by white people and taken and sold into slavery but some monks bought him and they treated him really well and taught him about Jesus and became a Christian and then he went to another country and lived with a family while he, while he waited to be sent back and they promised they would send him back when the next ship went but ships weren't like you know, as prevalent. He didn't hop on an airplane so he's gone for like 17 years, and he comes back, and he's able to bridge this gap between the white people and the Native Americans, because he has, like, all this cultural influence, and he doesn't have a bitter heart, because Jesus saved him, and he had become a Christian, so all of a sudden, like, I'm a Squanto guy, like, I I, you know, like, I'm a Steve Jobs guy, and I'm a Squanto guy, and uh, we had my niece spend the night over Christmas, and we watched the Veggie Tales uh, Christmas version that explained the real story behind Christmas, and it was about Santa Claus. And I, I like Santa Claus fine, but all of a sudden Santa Claus like the man. And, and what Santa Claus did was he actually, he was a rich guy that, that loved Jesus, long story short, I'm even telling a shorter version the Veggie Tales told, but long story short, rich guy that loved Jesus, and he saw that these women were going to be sold uh, by their parents in order to pay for their debt, and so he started dropping coins into people's Laundry that was hanging outside in order to pay the debt for for so that the daughters didn't have to get sold into slavery. Like, oh man, I love you, Santa. Like, why are so many Christians against you, man? I don't know what happened over the years, and and all of a sudden, Santa Claus was like this this happening dude to me. Like, I like him. And, and the truth is, when you know like this backstory of people, when you start to get like what happened before, people were the people that they are, you know, their public persona before they became famous, before you could look and be like this is what they did and this is what they do and this is what they said before. If you get back before the teaching people people give and before the stuff that they do, then you really start to get to know people. And I think this is true about Jesus. Over the last four weeks, we've talked about the importance of the Incarnation, and we said, you know, that it showed us what God is like, that the Incarnation being that God became a man in the person of Jesus, it showed us what God was like, it brought us into the family of God if we become Christians, it gave us access to God so that we could pray and interact and get help in our time of need. And last week we talked about how it provided the removal of guilt from our lives and how we can have this stuff that, that is like coal or charcoal that, that just kind of weighs us down and makes us feel dirty. We can have it removed by Jesus. And I think that a lot of people, even people outside the church, even people who aren't Christians, they, they know or at least they, they understand or, or have a history with uh, hearing about what Jesus did And a lot of people, even worldwide, even people who aren't Christians, who don't like Jesus, they even have an understanding about what Jesus said. But not a lot of people, like, know about who Jesus is. And what I want to do today and over the next two weeks after today is I want to tell these three stories that really follow the birth narrative in the book of Luke, and they follow that, but they're before these three stories. Jesus became like Jesus Christ superstar, you know? I mean, before it was like WWJD, before he was on T-shirts and bracelets, and I mean, this is before his public ministry, before people were following him around, before people even knew who he was, except for some carpenter's son. And I think, this is my hope, we'll hope it works out, I think, that we might get to a place where we just kind of, maybe hopefully for the first time, maybe for the second time, or maybe we just remember for the first time in a long time, we go, oh, that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. You see, we have this weird epidemic that I think is transferred over to Jesus in our culture. And when we meet somebody, and I try not to do this, but sometimes I find myself doing it anyway. When When we meet somebody, the first thing we say to them is like, what do you do, and I don't know why, it's a weird thing to say, right, like, and I noticed this, I've really noticed this, when I've known people who have been unemployed for a long time, and it's not for any fault of their own, they've just been unemployed, they're trying to get a job, they can't get a job, and at every party, every time they're hanging out, every time they meet somebody, it's like, what do you do, nothing, I mean, and then it's awkward, it creates this awkward tension, like it's somebody's lesser because they don't have a job or something, and, and that's where I've really noticed this kind of like weird thing that we have in the American culture, hi, nice to meet you, I want to get to know you, so I'm just going to ask about what you do for a job, like it defines a person. And it's like that has become Jesus to us. And when somebody talks to you about Jesus, you don't really talk about who Jesus is. You talk about what Jesus did, and you talk about what Jesus taught, but not really who Jesus is. And so my goal in this series that is named Meet Jesus is is hopefully just that we will like meet Jesus. Not just go, oh yeah, Jesus, he's like King Savior guy, but like, just kind of get to know him. And I'm not sure, and I hate to say this, and I'm still not sure about this sermon even today. Like, like if I'm gonna have like a point, it's not gonna be like a heavy uh, series. It's not gonna be like you need to do this or you need to understand this. I just want to kind of look at these stories, a- and hopefully when I'm done, this is this is the goal. This is the what's driving. Hopefully when I'm done, you'll go yeah, Jesus is cool, I want a Jesus t-shirt, buy me the Jesus hat for Christmas, you know, like, like I get him now, like I kind of understand his life and who he was, and not just what he did, and that's important, and not just what he said, but really who Jesus is. And I think, as we look in the book of Luke, this was, this was really Luke's goal. I think this is what Luke was trying to do. He was writing to a guy named Theophilus, and it was before they made videos, documentaries. But but Luke like went out like a, a documentary maker, which has an official name that just skipped my mind, but a documentary maker, and he went out and he like found people and he interviewed people, and then he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and you may not have known that. That's how Luke did his work, where Matthew was with Jesus, John was with Jesus, they hung out, they lived through these things. Luke was like, I need to write like the best version of this story possible, more educated than the other writers of the Gospels. Uh, and so Luke goes out and he starts interviewing people. People think that maybe there, there is a, a, an influence from Mary herself, the mother of Jesus in this Gospel, because Luke went out and said, I'm going to interview Mary. I and mean, that's a pretty good source. And so Luke writes this gospel that, that in some ways is like a good documentary. Like, hey, I'm just going to kind of give you the story. I'll give you the back information that you need. I'll give you the, the quotes that you need. And then I'll tell you about the life of Jesus in a way that, that draws you in. And, and his, his goal, you can tell it as he writes and as you follow through the book of Luke, is to engage this guy named Theophilus with this story about a guy named Jesus. I mean, he even leaves him hanging a little, and we'll kind of see that at the beginning where he just drops in little hints about what he's going to really teach you about what Jesus did and what Jesus said, but he really just at the beginning, he's like, hey, I just need you to see this is kind of who Jesus is. We'll come back to it. We'll get to it, but I just want you to kind of to, to click and to connect and to hang on and to follow. Now, this is the other thing you really, you got to understand this about Luke. Luke is one of the greatest historians the world has ever known i'm not saying that because i'm a pastor or a christian or anything like that i mean luke is luke is famous even in non-christian circles for recording things that, that other historians did not know about even until thousands of years later sir william Ramsay, who was not a christian uh, set out to really prove the book of luke wrong That was his goal. Like He he made it his mission to say, look, I'm going to prove that this is not a historically accurate document, that this documentary is all messed up, and that Luke said things that aren't true, and that the dates were wrong, and that the names were wrong, and that things are messed up. And this is what he wrote after he finished it all. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Pretty crazy right there in our Bible, Bible that, you know, most people wouldn't even care about the history because it's in the Bible somewhere, but I mean, this is a guy that didn't like what Luke wrote necessarily, but still at the end of his study said, yeah, well, even if I don't like the point and that he's proven Jesus, he still didn't get much wrong in there. He may not have got anything wrong as far as the dates and the names and the Roman history. Uh, at Auckland University their professor of the classics said this for accuracy of defi- detail and for evocation of atmosphere Luke stands in fact with the Kiddidus the Acts of the Apostles is no shoddy product of pious imagining but a trustworthy record it was the it was the spade work of archaeology which first revealed this truth so he points he says, look We now understand that Luke is one of the great historians because of archaeology. And this is the thing about Luke. For like a thousand years, people constantly, liberal, Bible scholars were constantly uh, disrespecting Luke as a historian because they didn't know the things that Luke knew. And the historicity of the book of Luke was questioned for over a thousand years. Like, well, he couldn't have been right because we don't know that this ever happened. But now, as archaeology moves forward further and further, and we find more and more stuff because we dig in the ground, Luke is more and more proved right every day. Like this, there was something found in 1905 about a census taken around the time of Jesus. You can look at it today. You can look at the document. It still exists. You can actually download it online, I found this week, in PDF form, in all its Latin glory. And and, and history has proven what Luke already said. And so here's why I feel the need to tell you this, because we're going to look at these stories, and it would be easy for somebody to go, well, I, sure, I mean... Anybody can write that. He's trying to prove that Jesus was the Son of God, Savior of the world. Obviously, he wrote that. But Luke is like one of the great historians that the world has ever known. And I'm pretty sure that if Luke wanted to kind of be a shady character, kind of put in some false details, he would have left out some of the names that people could actually prove wrong. You know, he would have left some things out, kind of just kind of glossed over it, not giving you the documents, not giving you the facts, not giving you the names, not giving you the exact time period, because then nobody could follow up. Nobody could check on it. But it's as if Luke is saying, look, I want you to check up on it. I want you to go to every person that I've interviewed. I want you to go to every document that, that you can find and I want you to check what I'm saying because what I say is true and it's the reason that you need to learn more and hear more and, and love more this person named Jesus we begin this first story in Luke two twenty two through 24, and here's what he says. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, talking about Jesus, to present to him the Lord, present him to the Lord, excuse me, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So purification for a woman came 40 days after she gave birth, and she would come to the temple, and she would do her sacrifices because she was ceremonially unclean and probably physically unclean after giving birth to a child. They made me watch a video in middle school, and so I'm pretty sure about that physical part. And and so uh, she would be ceremonially unclean, not right with God. And so 40 days after she gives birth, she makes a trek. Mary and Joseph make this trek so that Mary can be made pure again in the eyes of God. And the other part of this deal, the other part that's really interesting and kind of important for us to understand is that every firstborn, as it says here, was, was to be made holy to God. And so what that meant over time is that the parents would come with their child, they would present him to the Lord, say, He is yours. This is the firstborn male in our family. He is yours, God. Do with them as you please. And then, and this is funny to me, it's a little weird, they would pay five shekels, and then they would get their baby back. So the idea, the intent is kind of, they're there to serve the Lord, but it's like, God, will give you this money so that we can keep our baby. And it wasn't like Mary and Joseph were bad for doing this. This is just how it went. This is what they did. And it was an option that God had given people. You present your son, and then you can pay for them and get them back, and they can come home with you, but they're still mine. They're still set apart for me. Um now Mary and Joseph go there and they do this and it shows that they're poor because they use two turtle doves and two pigeons. And and all of this is kind of connected, this this ritual of buying back your baby from the book of Exodus when God saves uh, the firstborn of every Israelite family and frees people from Egypt and the slavery that the Israelites were under. And so it's all pointing to the Old Testament and it's all pointing to this. This is the primary thing. This is what you need to hear. This is what you need to understand. It's pointing to how righteous, to how holy, to how much Mary and Joseph loved God. It just wants you to know right up ahead of time that these are no crazy people. These are not people who are just flying by the seat of their pants. These are people who care to follow the will, the way of God. These are people who love the Lord with all their hearts. And you're going to see this theme continues. And it matters to Luke that you understand this, because Luke has already said some crazy stuff that he might have gotten from the mouth of Mary, like... Yeah, this one night, an angel came and he talked to me about how I was going to be, how I was going to have a son and I was to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Sounds a little crazy, right? I mean, you are going to need like some character background here because if somebody says that to me on the side of the road out here, you know, I think crazy. Honestly, I think like, if i'm theophilus reading this story i mean i'm not like a i don't have a godly background at least not the god of the jews and all of a sudden luke is writing this stuff and he's he's talking about what these people have have done and what these god has said to these people and shepherds and 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 like angels in the sky and it's crazy and i'm like you sure you got a good witness and luke jumps in and says, he wants like hey these are not the type of people to make this up. That's exactly what Luke's saying. These are people who love God, who serve God religiously. These are people that can be trusted. That's a theme that's going to continue here in a minute as he continues into Luke two twenty five and 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So Luke, I mean, he just, this is blatant, right? This isn't like, look at what this guy, these people did, they're they're righteous. I mean, he's like saying, this guy is like the guy. I mean, this guy's awesome. This is the guy that you want to be around your kids. I mean, this is like the Billy Graham of the first century. It says that, that he was righteous, which means he had a good relationship with God and perhaps with people, that he was doing the things that God had called him to do, and he was living out his relationships in a way that were pleasing to God. It says that he was devout, that he was careful, in other words, and following the religious rules it wasn't just that he did things that he was supposed to do it's like he took special care and emphasis to do the things that God had called him to do I mean he wanted to please God with all of his might and so he paid attention to things these things and here's the really kind of kicker it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him And you go, well, if you're a Christian, you've grown up in Christian circles, we believe as Christians that that when we accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon all of us and, and dwells us and lives inside of us and leads us and guides us and helps us to do things for the glory of God. But before Jesus, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody was really unique. And the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a special time and a special purpose like if you had to kill a giant or you needed to have a, a, the sea part, then the Holy Spirit would like come upon you and, and use you and work through you. But it wasn't always there. And we read of these special instances in the Old Testament before Jesus died and rose again and, and the Holy Spirit came and created the church. We read of these special instances where the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody. But here, it says about this guy named Simeon that the Holy Spirit was constantly upon him. The Holy Spirit's just moving in this guy's life, that God is like resting on this man in a special, unique way that was clearly not normal for the time. And this guy is waiting for the promised Messiah. And not only is he waiting for it, but God is, this is so crazy. I mean, just to be this close to God and this much uh, connected to God, God has promised him that he won't die until he sees the lord's messiah until the one who has been promised for thousands of years comes into the earth i mean this this is like this is like a, a guy i mean this is like Everything I want to be is like summed up in this person named Simeon. This is like an incredible person that, that you just have to believe. Everybody looks at, and, and you kind of maybe have had this person in your life, or maybe you wish you had this person in your life. That person loves the Lord. That person is anointed by the Lord. That person is used by God. God speaks through that person and to that person. I mean, this is a pretty special man. And listen to what this says. I mean, I just, this is my hope for this series that you won't just, maybe you've heard this story. Maybe you're like, I know this stuff, but like pay attention to it today. Really meet Jesus because this is incredible. And if we could get movie footage of this, you would be blown away. I mean, this would be like, this would be, if they had, it, where we're in the temple, where we're about to go. If they had like, like uh, uh, footage from the security cameras. I mean, this would be an incredible moment. Listen to what it says. Moved by the spirit. He went into the temple courts. Just picture, this scene is incredible. This is an incredible scene. This is one of those stories that I feel like just you just go past it and you jump to other things. But this, this is an incredible scene. And you need to understand this scene if you're going to have the backstory on Jesus. And I think Luke records it because he's going, hey, if you really want to know Jesus, not just know about Jesus, not just know what Jesus did, but really know Jesus, then you need to understand this. I mean, he's 40 days old. And he comes into the temple with his parents. The place of God's strongest presence. The place that God would fill up on occasion so strongly and powerfully that the people could barely move around. I mean, the place from which God spoke, the place from which the people were supposed to speak when they really wanted God to hear them and to respond to their prayers and their call for for, uh, help and their call for salvation and their call for forgiveness. And here comes Jesus, probably not wrapped in the swaddling clothes anymore, but being carried by his parents into this place, the place of God, and the place that really was the center of everything Jewish. Everything that the nation of Israel stood for. Everything that made them different from all other peoples on the, the world. And Jesus carried in there. It's just a plain simple day for Mary and Joseph. They kind of move past the craziness probably. The shepherds had come really early after the birth. The angels had already talked to them quite a few months earlier because she has now given birth to the prophesied son. And here they are 40 days later, probably thinking life was normal, thinking diapers are terrible and I wish this kid would sleep. And they saunter into the temple to do what God has called them to do because they were holy, devout people. And this guy that everybody knows and everybody loves and everybody thinks highly of, just takes Jesus in his arms. And it doesn't show in most translations, but the first word that he says. And in Greek, when when they write Greek, and this is in Greek, as in most of the New Testament, the first word is there for a purpose. It's used for emphasis. They don't use an exclamation point on a word. They just move it to the front. It makes it terrible when you're taking a Greek class. But this Greek sentence begins, his speech begins with the word now. I mean, this is like the moment for Simeon. It's like now, now, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the now, this is the present. This is everything I long for and everything I hope for and everything that was promised to me now. You can kill me, God. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, carrying your baby, you walk in, one of the most holy, righteous people that live at your time comes in grabs your baby and says now god you can take my life i'm ready to depart i don't care anymore i've seen everything that i need to see my i mean think of this way my dreams my hopes my passions my vision has now been fulfilled isn't that nuts i mean isn't that crazy I mean, you think about people's dreams and their hopes and the things that they want to do before they are died. their bucket list. Simeon has one thing on his bucket list, and God has promised him that it's going to happen. You're going to see my Messiah, the one who's going to save our people. And he takes this little baby, 40 days old, like six weeks old, to put it in our terms, and he says, now you can take my life in peace because now I have seen everything, I have done everything that I really want to do. I mean, that's nuts. That's crazy. That's one of those stories that you need to remember if you're going to understand Jesus. I mean, I thought about this and you think about when you look at somebody's life and you think about what people have said about them when they're little. And when you look at somebody and they get a job or they get a degree in a certain area, people always look back and go, Hey, I remember. I I mean, it's not surprising at all you're a fireman because when you were a kid, you always wanted to be that for Halloween. You know, or everybody always said you would. And here, you have this righteous man just pick up a baby and say, it's pretty important what righteous, holy, godly, smart people say about you, right? When you're young. And he just picks him up and says, now you can take my life because my eyes... Have seen your salvation. Isn't that crazy? I mean, this is about what Jesus does. I don't think Simeon even had a clue what Jesus was going to do. I don't think Simeon could have really understood, he could have, but I don't think he probably did, given the nature of what Jewish people thought about the Messiah. I don't think he really understood that Jesus was going to die on a cross, that Jesus was going to be resurrected, that Jesus was going to go into heaven and send back his Holy Spirit. I don't think any of those things come to mind for Simeon as he picks up this baby and says, now you can take my life. But yet, he looks at the baby and says to God in heaven, I have seen your salvation. I have seen your salvation. You see, Jesus is our salvation. I and mean, we kind of know what he does to create that, but it's not. I mean, when he was born, he was our Savior. He was the one who had come to take away our sins. And Simeon recognizes and says, take me, you can kill me because my bucket list is complete. I have now now seen your salvation. And then he says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now this is most of you here are Gentiles. I think uh, a very high percentage of you are are Gentiles. That means non Jewish people. And and I, this is so underrated. This is I mean this is this is irony for one thing because they're sitting sitting in the middle of of the Jewish world in the temple. They're sitting in the place that defines the Jewish people and separates them from everybody else. We have the temple. You don't. We have God's presence. You don't. We have access to God. You don't. And here's Simeon, a Jew with Jewish people talking about a Jewish baby, and he says, this baby is the light of revelation. And what he means by that is that he has opened up the way to God, that he has opened up the way to not only salvation, but a relationship with God. And it's so interesting as a Gentile to think about the fact that before Jesus, before Jesus came, We really didn't have light. We didn't have light that showed us what right and wrong was. We didn't have light that showed us the way into heaven. We didn't have light of the warmth and the peace and the joy that comes along with Jesus. We were in darkness. And we lived 2,000 years after this moment. But for a guy named Theophilus, who was growing up, hearing about false gods about all these gods that couldn't help him, that just demanded things from him, that didn't give him any access to themselves, these gods that just demanded from him all the time but never really presented any help. They left him in darkness. I mean, Theophilus, the first reader of this book, would have gone, whoa, whoa. And as we sit here, 2,000 years later, we should go, whoa, too. If this baby's not born then you are living in darkness. You are living without a moral compass. You are living without a chance at true peace, joy, forgiveness, love, forgiveness, all the things that come along with Jesus. And you are living without a direction on how to have a relationship with God, which every person I believe craves somewhere, maybe deep in their souls. And as, as Simeon picks up Jesus... He says, now, there's light for the non-Jewish people. I mean, this baby was, before he did anything, before he said anything, when he came into the world, all of a sudden God said, this is the way to me, this is the way to joy, this is right and wrong, this is what it's like to have a relationship with me, because Jesus came into the world, and as soon as he started living, he started shining, and he started shining on the path that leads to God. It's pretty incredible. It's, not, it's like one of those things we just skip right over, but I mean, he's 40 days old, and already Simeon has seen a light of revelation to people who aren't Jewish. And then he says a glory, the glory for the Israelites, for the people of Israel. Saying that Jesus is the one who makes Israel look good. And I believe that's still true today, yeah, because all of the promises that pointed to Jesus the birth of Jesus, it all came from the Jewish people. And, and for many, many periods in the history of the world, the history of the church even, there's been an anti-Semitism that says, well, the Jews rejected Jesus. When we read the Bible, when you read things like this, we ought to say, well, thank you for giving us Jesus. We are glad you provided us the promises and held on to the promises that pointed us to Jesus and proves Jesus to be the Messiah of the world. You see, for the Jewish people, Jesus acts like Christmas lights on a tree. It just makes them look better. It it glorifies them. It shows them off to the rest of the world. I mean, Simeon takes this baby... And I'm not sure the details of what he says are more important or less important than the scene itself because I think the scene is pretty cool. I think just the fact that he takes this baby in his arms and says, now kill me, God, I don't care anymore. And by the way, the language actually suggests that Simeon dies shortly after this. It's like, kill me, die, it's done, he doesn't care anymore. I mean, I think that scene's pretty cool, but, but what he says is, is pretty cool as well, that Jesus is, and this is something Jesus declares in the book of John, the light of the world. I mean, Jesus is the one who makes it so that we are no longer blind, but we can see. Jesus is the one who shows us what right and wrong is, and Jesus is the one who provides everything that, that, that is truly and ultimately good, and Jesus is the one who shows us the way to God. Jesus is the light of the world. And it was declared not by some guy that that wasn't good or didn't love God or who would have said these things flippantly, but by somebody who carefully served God every day. And this is what I think our response should be. And It's 233. It said, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Marvel means to wonder, to marvel, to be astonished, to look on with wonder and amazement, to wonder, to marvel at. And I think, I don't know, maybe you're like me, maybe you're different than me, I don't know. But, but sometimes, when it comes to Jesus, these incredible stories, like this one we're in the middle of, like, well, I heard it before, I read it once. Yeah, but it's still incredible. I mean, Mary and Joseph had already been, already been talked to by angels. That's pretty crazy, right? I mean, they had already heard who their son was and what their son was going to do. They knew about it. And then a bunch of shepherds showed up. And I mean, out of nowhere and said, hey, we saw a bunch of angels in the sky. And they came and they worship your baby. I mean, your baby's not even 40 days old at that point. Your baby's like hardly any days old. And these shepherds worship your son. I mean, nothing can maze them anymore, right? I mean, they heard it already. But then, forty days later, this godly man holds their baby, and they are blown away by it. Like, is this really happening? I don't think it was his words at all. I just think it was. This is not a heavenly being. This is just a guy, but a really good guy. And now he's declaring that my son is salvation and that my son is the light of the world. And they marvelled at it. And I think I think this is. So many of you, I think, you just you want to get closer to God. I think like I think that's a common thing. If you're a Christian, you're like I just I kind of wish that I could I could like just grow closer to Jesus. And then a lot of you go like I wish that I could I would just read the Bible more. You think that's the magic pill. If I just read the Bible more, then then I will magically grow closer to Jesus and everything will be all right. And and here's why I think you miss those two things so often. Because you don't marvel at the stories about Jesus. You read the Bible like some kind of textbook. You just go, oh, crazy, yeah, super righteous guy picked up their baby when he was 40 days old and declared that he was the salvation of the world. I mean, that happened to Walmart last week. I, I mean, come on, like, this is an incredible thing and an incredible story, and it continues. Because Simeon blesses them and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I mean, there's Mary and Joseph marveling, and then Simeon blesses them, but then he turns, and he says, by the way, it's not all going to be great. Because you're thinking, wow, I got superstar child, right? I mean, come on, we've had shepherds, we've had this guy, he's awesome, there were angels involved, the wise men haven't shown up yet, they show up like between verses 38 and 39 in Luke 2, uh, but, but like some crazy stuff is happening. superstar child, and then Simeon points out in a prophetic nature, no, 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 it's all not going to be great all the time because he is appointed for the fallen rising of many in Israel. This can mean one of two things. This can either mean that some will fall because of Jesus, some will go to hell because they'll reject Jesus, and others will rise, they'll go to heaven, or it can refer to one group and be saying, people will fall, they will humble themselves before Jesus, they will lower themselves because they love Jesus and they recognize who he is, and then they will be raised by God ultimately. The language is unclear, but either way, he says, look, Jesus is going to challenge things. And he's even going to challenge you. A sword will pierce your own soul too. And there's two ways to take this. Either this can refer to the fact that Mary and the family seemingly don't understand Jesus' ministry despite everything that has happened. And at one point his family seems to outright reject his ministry because they really don't get it. And they're like, well, I grew up with them. And how can he be saying all these things that he's from heaven and they don't get it? Or it can refer to the fact that Mary will watch her son die on a cross. But all in all, and this is, so, this is just so crazy, Simeon says that Jesus is going to be the dividing line, the litmus test. He is going to be the very thing that reveal people's hearts, that show their innermost thoughts, that show how they think about God. Because when you look at somebody and you see their reaction to Jesus, then you ultimately see how they are responding to God. We have this false notion, and I think it's, it's, it's infiltrated the church. We think, like, people can really love God, love the idea of God, kind of be godly people but not love Jesus. It's a false belief because Jesus declares who you are in your innermost being. Your response to Jesus is what determines whether you have a right relationship or a wrong relationship with God. Your response to Jesus says whether or not you want to please God and be right with God or not. We kind of get that, right? We can kind of see that. But just picture it now with a guy holding up your 40-day-old son and saying that. I mean, here's your baby, He's, I don't. Jesus might be crying, I already, I already ranted about no crying he made in that Christmas song that we sing that's horrible, but I mean, I like the Christmas song actually, but not that one line, but I already ranted about that, and, and now here's Jesus. he might have been crying, he might have been snotting, he might have just pooped on Simeon, and Simeon is holding him, going, this, this little creature is the very creature who will determine whether people are right with God or wrong with God. This little thing, this little guy will tell you whether a person loves God and is right with God or not. That's crazy. I mean, that's like one of those, whoa. That's like, wait, Squanto went to Europe? Santa Claus put money to pay for people so they didn't have to go into slavery? Steve Jobs' dad talked about him even though he didn't know it was his son. I mean, Jesus was held up by a guy at the temple and he declared that he was the Savior and the light of the world and that people's hearts would be revealed based on their reaction to this little baby. I can't ignore this. I think that's exactly what Luke wants from Theophilus not like, hey, he's going to die on a cross and you need to believe and and then you get to heaven. He's just saying, hey, hang on here because this is an incredible story, a wild ride that you are going to witness through my words. He continues, and I'm not going to talk about this for, for nearly as long, but there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day fasting, and praying. So another awesome person. I mean, this woman, is. it doesn't mean that she's at the temple every second of her life. It doesn't mean that she always fasts and prays, but but her life is like wrapped up in being about the things of God. You could say like she was always at church. She was about being where God was and doing what God wanted her to do, and she was devout, and she prayed, and she fasted, which means to not eat because you want to show God that you understand that he is great and you are not and you're fully relying on him and there's a lot more to it but, but I mean this is a, a woman that is devoted to God and it was chosen to be a widow for a really long time because she loves God and because she is choosing to serve God in a special and unique way and in Luke two thirty eight, it says coming up to them at that very moment she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem Here's the crazy part: the Israelites hadn't had a prophet in like 400 years, and here's this woman named Anna, little old widow woman, and she comes up and is described as a prophetess, and all of a sudden she becomes one of the first missionaries for Jesus. That's incredible. I mean, here's a woman that's at that temple every single day praying, devout, loving God, doing whatever God wants her to do. This is not some crazy lady that wanders up on the street because she's been doing meth and goes, hey, your kid's going to be cool someday. This is Anna. I mean, this is a woman that everybody knows and respects. And the temple guards would have said, hey, how you doing, Anna? You're here again. And she shows up. She takes the baby in her arm and she starts looking at everybody and goes, here's the baby that you need to know about. Here's the one who is going to bring the redemption that we have longed for for thousands of years. And we need to say, wow. We need to say, wow. Luke concludes when Joseph and Mary, and notice this, because it's it's proven the same point. These are not some crazy people. These are people who love God tremendously. They would not have made up these things. These are good witnesses to this story these are credible witnesses to the things that I'm writing to the things that are being said when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth and the child grew and became strong he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him I mean here you have four great great people Just declaring some incredible stuff about this kid named Jesus. And I want, I I hope, I just want want you to even, this is your homework, go home and read this again. Just go read the story in its entirety because I broke it up to just kind of insert some things. Just go read it. And, And I think that when we read this, our response should be to marvel, to go, this is not normal. This is not regular. This is not day-to-day stuff. This points to the fact that Jesus really was the Savior, the light of the world, and I am going to treat him as such. You see, the reason I don't think that I need great points in these stories is because I'm convicted and convinced that, that people live for Jesus more, not just when they hear certain truths that they need to do differently, but when they really like him more. And I think it's easy to love somebody when you know kind of what they do and what they said. You can kind of, you can say, oh, they're awesome and they're great and they did great things. But when you really know somebody, when you really get them, that's when you really like them. That's when you really want to be good to them. I mean, when I, I talk, I've talked about this before and this is, I'll finish with just this. Uh, it, I've been married for six years now. And if I'm being totally honest with you, and Brynn already knows this isn't going to be a shocker to her, it's only been in the last two years where I've really felt like Brynn was, was on the same level as my family. Because we didn't have backstory. We hadn't been through it together. We hadn't cried together enough. We hadn't hurt together enough. We hadn't lost loved ones together enough. We haven't seen problems together enough. But, but when you really start to like have some backstory... And where all of your memories are kind of wrapped up in these things that happen and you no longer have, you're like, I, I think you were there probably. Like, Chad, you were five years old. Oh, it seems like you were there, you know. When you really start to get somebody and you have a story with them and you understand not just kind of what they do and what they say, which is what reveals people to us sometimes, but really who they are and what they've been through, then you're in the fight with them. And so as we read these stories, and you look at this story, and you go home and read it again, I just want you to go, this is who Jesus is. He was a little baby that some great people held up and declared. This, this right here is the Savior. But not only is this the Savior, this is the one who makes it so that now, now I can depart in peace. Now you can kill me. Now you can die because I have seen everything I want to see. I've experienced everything I need to experience. We pray with me, Lord. thanks for having Luke include this story in the Bible. God, it seems like there's just an interest out there about about the things that um that happened to Jesus uh in between your birth Jesus and Kind of your adult ministry, but yet we have a few stories and we ignore them, Lord, and uh, we gloss over them as the unimportant stories, the stories that don't matter. And God, you know, my heart for this series is just th- that we would marvel. God, I pray that we would just kind of marvel at you and the life that you lived. Not a regular life. I mean, you were fully human, and we spent four weeks talking about that, and your humanity made it so that we could be saved and be part of your family and we could understand what what God is like and, and, and all these things, God. But you lived like this incredible human life. And, Lord, I don't want us to, like, forget about him. These stories, I want us to pay attention to them and and to grasp a hold of them. And, and, And at the end of it, when we've read it and when we've pondered it and we've reflected on it and when we've looked at the details of it, God, I just want us to go, whoa, Jesus was somebody that I have to pay attention to. And I pray, God, that this morning through this story and as we go through these weeks and these stories, God, the next two weeks and the stories, we'll, we'll see that, that, that we'll just go, whoa. God, and we'll kind of kick off the new year, not, not just learning more about you, but just really understanding you better. And that we would stop relegating you, God. I pray, God, in this next year, we would stop relegating you to a list of facts that we can list off. And somebody says, who is Jesus? And we go down the facts, but we say, like, Jesus is this, this person, this God that I know and love and I interact with and I know about his childhood and when he was a baby and, and I really get him because I'm connected to him. He cares about me and I care about him. Lord, I pray that, that, that this morning... You have become more real to people, that you have been made more human, God, but also made more God. And I pray, Lord, as that happens in our lives, that we would serve you better, that we would care about you more, that we would want to please you, God, in a stronger, more powerful way. Thanks for coming to earth. Thanks for being so awesome, Lord. We love you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.